There are not many people in the world who make watches the way Roger Smith does, so I'm delighted to be speaking with him today. He set up his studio in 2001 with an unswerving ethos to craft watches to appeal a standard of horological excellence. His journey has been one of continued discovery. Mastering the Daniels method, the art of handcrafting a watch, was his first great challenge. Since then, he has spent the last decade exploring the future of mechanical watchmaking. This has taken him into previously unexplored territory, ultimately discovering new worlds of possibility within the microcosm of timekeeping is what he hopes will define him as the watchmaker. Today he's working at the boundaries of mechanical watchmaking performance. He and his team are applying next generation science to what has always been regarded a traditional art form. He believes in staying true to the tradition of British watchmaking, which has always been about discovery. Roger, welcome and thank you for joining us. I wanted to start by asking you a bit about yourself, how you got into watchmaking. I know you've told the story many times, but tell us about it. Yes. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I, I got into watchmaking at the age of, of 16. And um, I'd just been through the usual sort of school system. Didn't really know what I wanted to do, but my father suggested that I sign up on this horology course, which was then based in Manchester. And there's a three-year horology course. And as a 16-year-old, I thought, well, why not? It sounded interesting. I was always very practical at school and so on. So, yeah, I thought the idea of sort of using my hands to do something and make something and, you know, hopefully work on watches and clocks would be interesting. So I readily accepted the uh, suggestion and went on the course. And that's where it all started for me. And how did you then start to work with George Daniels? So I think I was in my, I think probably in my second year, or maybe third year, I can't remember now at college, and uh, George visited. And he was invited by the college to come along, meet the students and talk about his work. So um, it's quite interesting, the day before he arrived, I heard that this man was coming, but I hadn't a clue who George Daniels was. Somebody said that he made watches, and but you know, I think I don't, I don't know if I don't think I really even believed that anybody could make a watch because watches would be made by industry. So anyway, to cut a very long story short, George visited, and he just blew me away. You know, this idea of you know he delivered a lecture in the evening and talked about his challenges of making completely handmade watches, watches which would take over a year to make, sometimes a year to 18 months to make by hand. And he'd make every single component within that watch, every single wheel, screw, the dial, the case, the hands, every single component in the mechanism. And this idea that that was even possible just blew me away. And I left, uh, I remember leaving the lecture in the evening and just thinking, wow, this, this guy is incredible. And you know, how, how on earth do you, wouldn't it be great if I could somehow get involved in actually making as opposed to repairing, which is what I was being trained to, trained to do. I'm, I'm just thinking about apprenticeships. Apprenticeships don't really work in the same way today as they, as they did, do they? No, no, not the sort of traditional types. No. I mean, I, I approached George many years, well, um, oh, it was only a couple of years later, actually, and asked if he'd apprentice me. And he replied and said that he couldn't. Um, he never took on people. He didn't take on apprentices. He was a, a, a sole worker. And um, if I wanted to um, sort of make watches, then really I had to teach myself. So I went down and 
I made a couple of watches over a very long period of time. And eventually that led to me working with him. You know, I sort of proved to him that I could make a watch which would work. And, you know, I was sort of dedicated to it. And that led to me moving to the Alaman to work alongside him. What was the process of making your first watch and how? where did you start? Yeah, I mean, um, well, I was very, we were all very fortunate that George wrote a book called Watchmaking, which is his guide to building a handmade pocket watch. So I was given a copy of this by my father for a Christmas present. And I read it to cover from cover to cover. And it's so well written. I thought, well, if George could make this wa- a watch, then so could I. I mean, <laughs> that's the beauty of being young and naive, I think. And um, I set up a workshop at home. Um, again, my father was instrumental in loaning money for a lathe for me to get going. And yeah, I, I just set about, you know, yeah, at some point you have to start. And that's what I did. And I started by making the mechanism for the watch. And from that very, you know, the very first day that I cut metal, as it were, on the lathe and started making the base plate for this watch, then immediately you're thrown into this incredible world where nothing else seems to matter. So you, you're just sort of swallowed into this what is it? an enormous task? Because as you say, you have to make everything. I mean, it's an odd form of watchmaking, really, and it's not really practiced today. George was the first person in history that we can really say sat down and made a complete watch from start to finish. And the reason why he was probably the first person was because there's no British watchmaking trade left at that point when he started making watches in the late 1960s. The industry had disappeared. And so he had to teach himself all these individual skills in order for him to be able to make a watch. And that's also what I had to do. I had to sit down and learn these individual skills and trades that were involved in the creation of a single pocket watch. What amazes me, having watched many of the films about you and your work, is the layout of of the studio. Yes. It, I mean, it's compartmentalized, isn't it? So you do, do you do one thing at one bench? Is that how it works? Yes, kind of. Yes. I mean, George always used to say when he walked into his workshop that, you know, he'd go in there with a germ of an idea and leave with a completed watch. And I mean, I always used to sort of see his his workshop as being a, an, a watchmaking industry under a single roof. And it was, you know, he'd have his case making area, his dial making area, wheel making areas and so on. And assembly areas and yeah that went on and obviously there was some interaction between many component many bits of equipment for various different tasks but yeah generally it was compartmentalized as as it is for us today in our workshop is it the same setup and do your team kind of follow the process round how does it work well the the main workshop is split into three main rooms we have a, a sort of manufacturing room where the raw components are made and then we have the, the, the middle room where a lot of the finishing and metal treatment takes place. And then the final room is the assembly room. So, yes, basically you can enter one, one end of the building with the raw material and at the other end leave with a completed watch. So, yes, it, it has to flow. There has to be flow within the building. Yeah, I'm, I'm becoming slightly obsessed with watchmaking now. <laughs> <laughs> Before we, we, because I've got so many questions to ask, um, but I just wanted to ask you firstly, what's the most exciting thing about what it is that you do? I mean, why watchmaking? That's a very good question. I mean, it's just something that grabbed me. I mean, I think it's the challenge of it. I think that's what interests me. I'm 
I think I get bored if if I'm just making the same thing day in day out. I lose interest in in what I'm doing. So for me, it's the creative opportunity, and watchmaking is very good for that because if you um, you know have ideas to improve mechanical timekeeping as as George did and you know as I do, um, then it's a hugely rewarding area because there are always improvements that you can make to a mechanical watch and that's very much my focus in watchmaking is is improving the life of the mechanical timekeeper and trying to make it a better machine really what then inspires you (laughs) what inspires me gosh all the trick questions (laughs) yeah 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 i've never had to think about my work like this before (laughs) um what inspires me i mean it's well i mean obviously george george has been a huge massive feature within my life and he still is and he he used to tell me that there's there's no point in just making watches you know you have to make a difference you know and what he means by that i mean if you go back in the into the history of watch and clock making um into the sort of uh six, you know certainly 17th 18th century and there's a huge period where there's a real focus on improving the mechanical timekeeper and is very important is used for the ultimately for the navigation of ships around around the world's oceans and um i think i think it's that sort of yeah that's the the main feature of watchmaking which really has hooked me in this as i say this continual drive to improve the watch and we've we've made huge inroads in doing that in terms of extending service intervals and improving the design of the actual mechanism that the escapements are, are fitted into. So it's this continual quest, which I suppose inspires me. I know um, watching The Watchmaker's Apprentice, because you, I think it's near the end, you said that you had taken the second watch to George mm. and he said, oh, you're a watchmaker. And I could see you were quite emotional Yes, talking about that. Yeah. And, yeah. and I suppose the, my response was also quite emotional. I thought, wow, that is some achievement after five years yes. being inspired by this guy who then says, oh, you've done the job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it still gets me today, actually, that moment. But, uh, you know, I've spent, um, I think in total, making the two watches, it was about seven years. And they were, um, yeah, incredibly difficult times, I suppose. I mean, you know, you, you I was... I set myself this challenge of making a watch and I, at the very start, I didn't know if I was able to make it. And the first watch was built within a year and a half. And George viewed that first watch and he told me that is no good, you know, go away and improve on all your skills and you know, fo- really focus on all these different areas. So I did that. And yes, the second watch took a year, uh, five and a half years and is made several times throughout that period. As I gradually improved, and yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, I mean, I remember walking down the driveway to George's house, thinking, "Well, if he doesn't approve this watch, then really, my career as a watchmaker is probably over," because I've I really had felt that I've put absolutely everything I put into that watch, and I didn't know how I could improve. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a big moment in my life, really. Do you still have the watch? No, no, I had to, as with everything, I had to sell it to keep the uh, business afloat. So, <laughs> no, that's in a private collection now in, in America. 
but amazing that it you know that somebody's enjoying it i guess because that's why you do what yeah. you do yeah yeah exactly and and you know i i just moved on and on to the next watch and that's all i've ever done really yeah i, I guess there comes a point where you have to let go don't you you have to say okay it's finished mm. now let's move on to the next thing which yeah. is a difficult thing to do yeah it's um i've always been able to do that though you know because uh, i think i'm quite black and white in that respect and you know, once that part of my life has moved on, it's on to the next phase and focus on that and, you know, try and improve in those areas that I knew, you know, know that I need to. So you started apprenticing with George and how much time did you have with him? Because he died in 2011, is that right? So after showing the watch to him, the, there was, I didn't work for him straight away. I think there's about maybe six or nine months gap before he offered me the job. So he was, um, I mean, basically I went back to my ordinary life and uh, carried on doing what I was doing. In the meantime, George was working with Amiga to develop the coaxial escapement for their wristwatches. And that was, work was coming coming to a culmination. And George wanted to create a series of watches called a Millennium Wristwatch, which was a series of watches which contained his coaxial escapement, which was going to be produced by Amiga. And we were, we want, he was wanting to build a series of watches around this very, this very movement. And so that's how I ended up working with George. He invited me over to work with him. And I worked, so that was in 1998 when I moved to the Isle of Man. And I worked with him on that project for um, just over three years. And then we worked, we had a bit of a break. And then we worked together on another project called the Anniversary Project. And we all worked on, I built two handmade Torbin wristwatches for him as well during that period. So, but from 2001 onwards, I was kind of on my own, doing my own thing, but still doing bits with George as well. And then you started your company rw smith yes how did that all come to be well it was um uh, the work with george was coming to an end we were we built just about 50 50 odd millennium wristwatches over the three-year period and that work was coming to an end you know by that time george was well i think about 70 75 or six um wanting to take life a little bit easier enjoy his cars a bit more and so it's time for me to sort of start out on my own. Yeah, that's, as I say, started in 2001 and I had ideas. I'd already started accumulating some equipment of my own to help my, me set up my own business. And I'd had ideas for a wristwatch that I wanted to make. And yeah, the day came and um, that was it. Back into the big wide world again, wondering how I'm going to pay for a mortgage and so on. So, yeah, interesting times. Yeah, so that's 20-odd years ago now. Yes, 2001. Yeah. Yes. What are the biggest changes you've seen in how you work? Because I'm assuming that 20 years ago, you know, were you using CAD? Was everything... Yeah, no, no, I, I certainly wasn't using CAD in those days. Um, and I was working on my own. Everything was being done by, on my own. So, yeah, I mean, I was very much copying or, you know, I mean, the, the previous 10 years had just been spent making watch components entirely by hand, you know, and fabricating every single component by hand and obviously using manually operated, you know, lathes and so on to help me do that. But it did just get to a stage where, I mean, the markets had changed. So, so basically, 
George, throughout his life, had predominantly made pocket watches. He made about 24 pocket watches throughout his life. And the last, he made two wristwatches, uh, you know, latterly in his career. And basically, the markets had shifted towards wristwatches. And I knew when I was about to embark on my own that really pocket watches, you know, were not where I would find a market. I mean, I'm sure I could have sold them, but really wristwatch, wristwatches were really taking off then. And there'd been a huge shift from pocket watches to wristwatch collecting. And vintage wristwatches at that point, again, were becoming collectible and were rising and raising in, in, in value and so on. The big problem is with, with wristwatches, they are very small to make, particularly by hand. So to give you an example, a pocket watch will take, yeah, I mean, sorry, a pocket watch you can make with fairly rudimentary equipment and you can uh, make to tolerances of one to two hundredths of a millimeter fairly easily. The problem is when you start moving to wristwatch making, the uh, tolerances suddenly magnified to about um, three to four thousandths of a, of a millimeter. And that's really difficult. That is, life becomes very challenging then. And I sort of proved this to myself while I was making the two Torbian wristwatches that are made for George Daniels, and also the Series 1 uh, wristwatches, which I made or started making in 2001, and one of those was made for Theo Fennell, or three of those, sorry, were made for Theo Fennell. And that just proved to me that really, if I was ever to survive in watchmaking, in wristwatch making, I had to go down the route of buying some machinery, CNC machinery, to enable me to um, really start to, well, to start to prove, high, uh, make highly accurate components that I knew would be interchangeable with with each other and so on. I mean, I'd started taking on my first my first employee joined me in, I think it was about two thousand and maybe three, and already I could sense, I, I, I could sense that. You know, I, I, I sort of forced myself into this very bizarre world of making watches by hand. And what I realized was there's a honed um, skills which not many people would be prepared to spend decades learning. And, um, you know, that really the CNC was the only route for me. As I say, if, if ever I wanted to employ people and then if ever I wanted to make more than one watch a year, that was really the only way to go. So, yeah, a big, a big sort of structural change within the business route. I'm just thinking about you on your own making those watches in 2001. So did you, was that the same process that you had learned or that you had been practicing before where you were making every single component, you know, the springs, the cogs, the winders, the faces? Yes, yes. I mean, I mean, we still do do that today. But yes, yes, I mean, absolutely everything was made. And um, but as I say, with wristwatches, a big challenge. I mean, it's virtually impossible to make a wristwatch by hand. I mean, we, I managed it on a few occasions, but the work is just so demanding. It's just not sustainable over a long time, over a long term period. So, yes, this is why we, we had to go, as I say, down the route of the CNC in order to give me that repeatability and super accuracy that you need 
in a wristwatch, or at least a wristwatch that you hope will keep time in the long term. So it's it, it, it's the only way. It's the only way you can make wristwatches sustainably. You know, it's it. Yeah, you, know, you just no way to create a business otherwise. So, um, and you still don't make many of them a year. No, no, we have um, we have twelve employees, and um, we make this year we'll make fifteen pieces. So the watches are still staggeringly labour intensive. Um, what those um, accurate components enable us to do is to, you know, create extremely high quality watches, and we can now spend huge amounts of time on finishing the watches, on decorating, uh, treating the the materials, and um, yeah, finishing them to an extraordinary level, which is way beyond anything you'll ever find in the industry yeah and that's i mean that's the thing that really um fascinates me just the the level of of skill and craftsmanship and dexterity i mean you know thinking about those tiny little i don't know what it, you know the jewels for example because yes. there's, there's not one of them there are many of them that go in yes and all the little cogs and like i said those springs i mean just looking at as i said some of the films and just looking at the backs of some of the watches, I mean, they're so complicated. They can, yes, they are. Yes, I mean, and I seem to be getting making them more complicated every single time I um, design a new watch. So, again, yeah, that's just part of the challenge of and fun of making watches. But it's something that you you know you get used to. It's something I've always done, and you know the dexterity. Yes, obviously, it, it's something you have to learn. But I think anyone who's drawn to watchmaking basically has that wow okay so <laughs> I, just tell me a little bit about your creative process or design process it's probably best if i talk about the series four which was a watch which we have just it's now into production we've just completed the fourth fourth piece and that's a watch which i started designing back in 2015 and in fact, I launched the concept in 2015. The ideas for that watch started forming probably about a year and a half before the concept was launched. And I wanted to make something different. You know, my mainstay at that point had been the Series 2, which was a time-only watch which had a power reserve display on it. And so I wanted to do something more complicated. I'd been making a few unique watches for clients which had various calendar complications on and so I wanted to expand on those ideas and I'd always been you know really impressed with the triple calendar complications so basically a watch which will display the uh, day the date and the month and also that in this case the phase of moon and I was working on designs for this particular watch but I was always coming up against a brick wall because uh, the main problem with triple calendar complications is that you have or on some models you tend to have a hand which radiates out from the center a date hand pointing to a um you know the the, uh, the date um at the periphery of the dial and the problem with that is that you'd have a hand which would sit across key pieces of information for several days at a time. So the month or the day, which, you know, as George always used to drum into me, you know, that would defeat the purpose of the dial, which is meant to be to legibly and very clearly tell you the 
time and any other information in an instant. So this became a problem for me. And even though I desperately wanted to make that complication, I couldn't get past this issue with this hand blocking key pieces of information. So I think what I'm trying to say is usually for some reason I find a problem in watchmaking that or in design that I try and resolve, at least in my own way. Uh, it probably doesn't care, matter to many, many other people, but for me, to me, it, it, it somehow does. And anyway, after, a, you know, one of these, you know, after I can't remember how many months, but they eventually came up with this idea of this travelling aperture, which moves around the periphery of the dial, pointing to the date at all times, and therefore it relieves this issue with the dial and makes it legible. And so that was the start of it. That was how it started. I launched the concept in 2015 at Salon QP. I built a prototype, which was basically a dial and a case in hands. Um, and I had a rough idea how I would make the mechanism inside, but it wasn't finalised by any mean, by any means at that point. I showed this idea at Salon QP and it got an incredible reaction. I got orders for the watch straight away. And so then it was back to the drawing board to actually try and design the mechanism around my idea. And the first route I went down, I probably spent about probably about nine, it could have been close to a year designing a mechanism, struggling with it, making various um, sort of parts of it to try and make sure the mechanism would write, would work. But I just wasn't getting anywhere. You know, I just couldn't get past the basic issues that I had. Eventually, I just had to scrap the whole lot, you know, throw away a year's work in effect and start again and just start with a completely different approach that fortunately just all clicked into place and relatively quickly I designed a new watch. So, um, but I think that's, yeah, it's all about trying to sort out challenges. So there isn't difficult to know, you know, do I have a design philosophy? I'm not sure if, well, I suppose maybe that is it. Maybe that is my philosophy. Just keep on working away until I resolve the apparent issue. But it's, it's like you look for a really complex problem and then try and solve it. Yeah, yeah, that's the challenge. It's always been that. And as I say, going back to actually making my watches in the very earliest, earliest days, that was the big challenge. Could I actually make a watch? That's what I enjoy. And that's the craftsmanship. Mm. To be able to identify a challenge, mm. specifically, I suppose, one that's as complex as as watchmaking, and then to be able to solve it and have a finished product at the end, that tells the time. Yes. Amazing. It's amazing. Yes. Surprising <laughs> myself sometimes. <laughs> uh, you use a bit of CAD now. You've got a whole um, a, a workroom and you've got apprentices. Yes. So yes. that's also quite different to the way I guess you started starting on your own you now employ a team are you doing a uh, George Daniels in that you are work do you work with them in the same way he worked with you well I suppose I'm not one-to-one with them at all you know well I'm saying at all but obviously my philosophy has spread throughout the whole workshop and I'm keeping an eye on everything all the time and making sure people you know work to the standards and so on that I expect and Every single watch is designed to my my vision of watchmaking. So 
so yeah, I mean, the business is obviously, it's, it is different to when I was working with George. You know, George was looking over my shoulder and telling me I was doing it wrong or right, uh, mostly wrong in the early days. Um, so yeah, it, it is different. Um, but, what I, but what they are learning is a different approach to watchmaking, you know, and a different approach to building watches. They, each watchmaker is responsible for, responsible for building a complete watch. And so they will take the raw components and they'll start all the finishing and hardening and heat treatment processes. And they'll take that through to completion. And, um, you know, that's a, a massive undertaking, you know, and it's, um, but fortunately, you know, we've got a, just a, an astonishing group of people at the moment who are superbly capable and um you know able to work to this exacting standards you know day in day out really it's, it's great a couple of them over the years have had a go at making watches we've got one guy at the moment who comes in at evenings and weekends and you know he has free use of the workshop to build his own watch and he's been now building a watch for over a year now a wrist watch and um you know so yes for anything like that i'm always on hand you know to offer advice or any ideas or whatever but um you know it, it's great it's great to be seeing that workshop used and people trying to go down this route of of building an individual watch so everything's there it's just up to the person themselves to make the most of this situation and you know i'm always there to help with that i mean it's amazing i was speaking to somebody else um the, yesterday in fact um, and they do couture um embroidery for you know the big designers okay. they said to me that what makes the good a good master <laughs> is the ability to do everything that you're asking your team to do yeah i want to ask you a little bit about luxury so when i started this podcast about we only started at the beginning of the year the first image we showed um, when we launched on social media was the peacock clock in st petersburg <laughs> Okay, <laughs> that was the, that was the thing for us that um, personified luxury, right. the the mechanism, but also time. Yes, and I was, yes. I was just wondering yes. if you thought that horology personifies luxury. Well, I, I think luxury is an interesting thing, isn't it? it I suppose it depends on you know, the person who perceives it to be luxury, isn't it? Mm. You know, the um, the person who's out there searching for a luxury item. You know, what what's their perception of luxury? And um, you know, to many people, it may be owning a very nice car or you know, the other extreme, you know, a very nicely hand carved wooden spoon. You know, to some, that is a luxury item. And it's something that the person who's buying it invests a lot of thought and possibly time in acquiring or searching out and learning about how the particular item, whether it's a painting or a clock or a watch or um, piece of jewelry has been made and i mean there's no doubt that watches are a luxury item do your customers think of the watches they um buy from you as luxury items i'm not sure i mean yes to be honest i've never had that discussion i, I suppose maybe it's an unusual question really because i suppose their focus is, is a watch isn't it they come to us and they want something very very different and I suppose if they were to reflect on it, they would probably say, well, yes, it's a luxury for me 
to be able to do that. It's a, you know. It, so I was thinking it in a, in a slightly different context, oh, right. as not not necessarily around the monetary value of it, but um, um, more to do with the the crafted aspect of it. So it's luxury because they're engaged in a process that mm. you and your team are realizing. Mm. which they wouldn't get anywhere else and that's for me that's the luxury it's not about how much money you're spending on it it's just about the the time the yeah. consideration yes. all of the you know yeah yes yes well i suppose yes you've sometimes I've answered nice. the question yes you yeah, have very well <laughs> <laughs> no no, no I, yes you are right it's, no uh, i just think often we lose sight of the things that make things important and valuable mm. aside from the monetary value and i think i was speaking to theodore deal yes about the about richard mill uh, yes. and their process and i was just thinking you know there's there's so many watchmakers in the world who aren't actually watchmakers yes and he was saying to me that you know some some companies are producing 300,000 pieces mm. you know at very high prices and I, I mean, the question I asked him was, well, where do all these things come from? You know, where are all the components coming from? And he was explaining to me that, I don't know, at Richard Mill, they bought a million pounds worth of, I think he, he said cogs. Yes. And he said, even though it was a million pounds, and there are a lot of them because they're so tiny, it's quite expensive for that kind of watch. But he was saying, you know, there are people that make the the, the glass, there are people that make the springs, yeah. you know, it's all kind of bought in and then assembled. So just going back to answering my own question around <laughs> this luxury thing, it's what you're doing is so remarkably different. Yeah. And that's the luxury. I mean, that's how yeah. I'm seeing yes. the, the luxury. How do we preserve what it is that you do? Because there's so few of you in the world who actually do this. The same with the embroiderer I spoke to yesterday. She said, you know, there are two companies in Italy because they the companies are now reliant on other providers outside of Europe. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, so how do we preserve it? Well, I mean, in my case, the idea is, that, or the plan, is that the business will continue long after I'm gone. and. Um, in theory, the um, you know the the philosophy will carry on. Yeah, I mean it's uh, and I hope that one day somebody will leave my workshop and set up on their own and you know do their own thing. That's that's that that would be you know the real great thing if that could happen. So yeah, I mean I think I think it's interesting that watchmaking always throws out. I think as the world has become more and more commercialized and the brands have got bigger and bigger. Um, I think that's border. That's that, that's created a lot of interest. A lot of people are now looking to do something different. I think people are being thrown out of the industry because they're bored, and they think, "Well, I can do better than this, or I can create a bit more excitement and try and create watches which are different." And actually, Richard Meal that you mentioned, you know, he was a perfect example. He, you know, he just appeared almost maybe 20, 15, 20 years ago. And it's doing something very different and unique and has a huge following. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's exciting that that is now possible. Whereas, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the idea of making watches outside of the industry, outside of that tight, closed-knit industry, was an impossibility. It just couldn't happen. I mean, George Daniels was the first person 
in the late 1960s to actually say, well, I can build a watch outside of the industry. And before that had happened, the, the, the whole concept just wasn't there. So I think as, as we've become more and more commercialized, which we are becoming, sadly, it does have a knock-on effect and it, it will throw, throw people out. So I am always optimistic that <laughs> some, some, somebody like myself at some point will sort of set about and start building handmade watches. And thinking about what you've just said, there's more recognition around craftsmanship than there yes. was perhaps five years ago. Yeah, yeah, very much so. How do you communicate craftsmanship? Well, I started again back in, I think, 2000. Uh, yeah, the early 2000s. I started putting videos up onto YouTube. And um, that was actually a response, I suppose, to to the way I was being written about and so on, and the way I, I was seeing the media writing about other watchmakers. And, um, you know, I was reading these articles about these watchmakers, these brilliant watchmakers who I knew full well, either A, weren't watchmakers, or B, brilliant, or C, actually didn't know one end of the watch from another. And yet they would be being described as, you know, one of the greatest watchmakers in the world. Or, you know, that's how the media used to be in those days. And so I used to start creating pretty poor videos, and they're still up on YouTube, um, demonstrating how I would make various components for my watches or finishing a set of hands for a wall, you know, various sort of skills that I would utilize in order to create my early watches. And they're still up there today. The collection of videos have had way over a million views now. And so that's out there and hopefully will always be there. Today, I, I sort of use Instagram and, you know, been using that now for quite a number of years. And again, you know, just showing odd things around the workshop, things that interest me. And there's no real, um, I don't really have a an idea in my head as how to um, sell myself or sell the work we do but what i do try and do is just what's so vitally important is honesty throughout all of this you've got to be honest and again i've seen so many people come foul of that over the years when you know there are no secrets anymore with the internet and so on and um you know if you say that you um, are making your movements in house then you really have got to be making your movements in house and um, because I can assure you, you'll be found out and um, that'll be the end or long, slow decline of your business. So as long as you can be honest in everything you say and do, then you know, that's my best advice. And that's, I mean, that's absolutely important advice because honesty around you know, craftsmanship, it's not only about being truthful to yourself but also truthful to the process that you're undertaking yeah. and then communicating to others yes i want to ask you about something that i, ha I have little understanding of um, and there are two things one is the coaxial escapement escapement yes and then this was there a single escapement that you did yeah that's right yes yes <laughs> okay. yep good so <laughs> i've got I, I mean a little understanding um, through having done some research, but I was just wondering whether you could explain it because it's they, they're quite important developments in terms of the world of watchmaking. Yeah. So, um, so yes. So George invented the coaxial statement, and he um, the, the claim was, and you know, it's been proven that uh, you know, uh, basically, it's 
it's more mechanically efficient than the current escapement, which is used in the majority of mechanical watches today, which is a lever escapement. And George developed this and saying that um, because of the way the power is delivered through the escapement, it means that um, the escapement is no longer reliant upon oil. And as we know, an oil in any mechanical device will deteriorate and will cause problems ultimately for the mechanism. And so because this coaxial escapement is not reliant upon the use of oil, it means that it will extend the service interval of the watch far beyond the lever escapement. So typically, uh, a modern mechanical watch with a lever escapement, you will have to have that serviced uh, because of the deterioration of the oils, anywhere between five and eight years, really, to maintain a good rate of timekeeping. So George claimed that his escapement would go for 10 years without a service. That seems certainly seems to be the case now. What I've done with his escapement is we took it on in, we fitted it into our first watch in 2006. And we, I think, <laughs> I think for the first time, we've been able to build a set of principles around the escapement. Because George made, I think, eight watches, all containing the coaxial escapement, but they're all fitted into very different mechanisms. And so although George could prove that they were mechanically efficient in the way the power was delivered, what he what is never able to do was to sort of build upon that and to build a set of principles that you could then um, sort of apply to subsequent mechanisms and so on. So to date, we've built over 100 watches since we started in 2001, uh, with exception to the first uh, nine pieces, which contain the lever escapement. Everything has had the coaxial escapement in it. And we've been developing that escapement over that over this period. We're still developing it even to this day um, because we're learning so much about that escapement and how the escapement can actually benefit the mechanism as a whole in terms of extending the service interval of the watch. And um, one of the sort of key developments that I came up with was creating the single wheel, which you've mentioned. So the coaxial escape wheel is made of traditionally, how George made it, it was made of two wheels, one sat above the other, and both of the wheels were mounted on a common arbor. And the two wheels were have to be angularly orientated to each other very precisely. Now, the problem with doing that is that you get eccentricity issues between the upper and the lower sets of teeth. And in the coaxial escapement, which is super accurate, or has to be super accurate, any variation in the concentricity of those two sets of teeth will cause problems when you come to timing the watch, when you come to rating it and so on. And this was a, an ongoing problem that I had. And, um, you know, just getting more and more frustrated with our ability to bring these watches to time. I mean, the early watches all keep very good time, but it was a, on occasion, it was a bit of a battle to get them to keep really good time. But um, nevertheless, we, you know, with every single watch, they are, they are accurate, but um, it's a challenge. So anyway, it's one of those sort of light bulb moments in the middle of the night when I thought, well, if I can combine two sets of teeth onto one single wheel and therefore machine the complete escape wheel in one single operation, 
then that would guarantee the angular orientation of the two sets of teeth, also the concentricity of the two sets of teeth, um, along with the concentricity to the center hole in the wheel. And that change transformed the escapement. And, um, you know, people were noticing differences um, in the in our ability to bring that watch to time, and it shortened the time hugely. Um, so yeah, that was one of the sort of early sort of changes that we sort of adopted, I think back in 2010. Um, but again, that's led to once you discover, or once you start to make certain improvements, it then highlights, highlights other previously unseen issues with the escapements. That sort of come to the fore, and here we are in 2021, and um, we're making watches where now we we believe that these watches will you know will only need a service every 15 years, possibly 20 years. We just don't know yet, but certainly 15 years, we would be very happy with not seeing the watches um, back into the workshop. That's amazing. And am I right in, in saying that they are all winding what you have to wind them? Yes. So manual wind, manual wind. Yes. Yes. And is that better than a self winding? No, I mean, people would say that an automatic winder is better because in theory, um, it would have a more consistent level of power going through the watch all the time because, the watch is always being wound. I, um, but no, there's something nice about a manually wound watch. You know, it's it's the interaction and you know that you have with it and winding it every morning or evening and so on. So there's a new challenge. No, but I'm sure nothing wrong with an auto. And one day we may even go there. So. The other thing I I wanted to ask you was about ticks. Okay. Ticks per hour makes the watch keep better time. Yes. What does that mean? Is that with the the cogs going round? So, so the industry um, has moved in favour of faster and faster beating or ticking watches. So there has been a, a big move really since I think the 60s, 1960s, 70s for higher frequency watches. And um, it's quite common to have watches which will tick at 28,800 ticks per, per hour or 36,000 um ticks per hour and um my watches tick at eighteen thousand vibrations per hour and which is a lot it's still five ticks per second so these mechanical watches have to do a huge amount of work but my belief is that uh, the lower the vibrations per hour the um less wear and tear you'll find within the mechanism and that's why we can extend the service intervals of the watches so massively over the industry whereas the industry their belief is that the more ticks you can fit into every single second then that will enable you to average out the uh, timekeeping over that second so you'll have a higher degree of accuracy over a period of time but my issue with that or is that the pro- you know in order to get all those ticks your escapement, your balance wheel is working so much harder and you have a more rapid deterioration of the lubrication that drives that watch that really, you know, it, it's, I think it's just a bit of a waste of time really, but uh, 
that's just me again on my drive for you know improved mechanical timekeeping is it important for a watch to keep time i mean this might sound like the most stupid question and the reason i ask is because do we still need a watch yes yeah i mean i think yes of course and you know of course it's vitally important that they keep time um but um you know as we've already sort of talked about it's about how those watches are made the story behind those watches being made and whether you buy one of our watches or you buy a branded watch they've all got very interesting stories behind them and different uses and you know you have sports watches and dress watches and you know a multitude of different sort of purpose watches really and you know it's uh you know I've heard many people saying that, you know, it's it's the only piece of, if you like, jewellery that a man can wear, really, you know. I mean, of course, you know, we could Depends all wear jewellery. but <laughs> Well, exactly, exactly. But, you know, um, hold your head up high with a watch, basically. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's a really, a real fascinating subject and lots of technical interest there. So, yeah, you know, they're... Um, there's certainly room for watches a long time to come. Yeah, no, and I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think about, I know I keep going back to films that I've watched of you making things. And as, as we've said earlier, they, they're so complicated. And I'm, I've been trying to think for weeks now, what other item one would wear on their body that has that complexity in the construction in it? You know, I think about a tailored suit or a couture dress or a pair of shoes. There's nothing. Yes. No. No, and it's um and we expect to strap it on our wrist and for it to keep time for years and years and years without fail. No, I mean a watch is an extraordinary piece of equipment. And the way it's been developed over the years, you know, from very humble beginnings, you know, in pocket watches in the sort of you know, sixteen hundreds, late sixteen hundreds. Um, to what they are today, I mean, they are astonishing. It's of mechanical art, really. Um, I just wondered what other, you know, what are the materials you you use to make these watches? For the dials, we use silver generally as the base material, and mixture of silver, sometimes all silver. Sometimes we use golds in the dial as well. So we use basically precious metals for the dials, and the color that I think you may be thinking is. The enamel is probably engine turned silver. So we decorate the, the, the dial. We use um, a, a couple of rows, a rose engine and a straight line engine, which were about two, which are about 200 years old. And we use those to create the pattern on the dial. And then that white effect that you're seeing, that's um, caused by bleaching. So what we do, we take that silver dial and then we play a flame over it. And it heats up the dial and it brings this pure silver oxide, which is white, to the surface. And that's what you're seeing. So um, so we use precious metals for the cases also. So yellow, white and uh, red gold and platinum. And then the mechanism is um, a variety of materials and we it depends on the component that we're making. So. The materials is a particularly, you know, material choice is really quite vital in in a watch which you hope will run for 
decades to come, you know, even 100 years to come. So we don't really use the traditional materials, so steels and, well, we still use steels. Um, but going back, you know, 100 years is predominantly just steel and brass. We don't use brass anywhere in, a, in any of our watches today. You know, that's been superseded by materials like nickel, silver. Um, we use other materials such as beryllium, copper, which are very hard. You're able to get great precision out of them when you're working with them. And um, we do use steels, but again, they're sort of more modern sintered steels and so on, where you can, again, machine very, very well and harden temper very well and, you know, get incredible quality components at the end of it. So there's, um, yeah, the material choice is massive when it comes to watches, as it is with anything mechanical, you know, car engine or anything. It's, um, metology has come on hugely, you know, particularly in the last, you know, five, 10 years in horology. You need to then take material innovation into, into consideration. Certainly, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, I'm always, when I'm designing a, a, a mechanism for a watch, yes, that's one of the earliest choices. You know, you're designing a spring and you design decide whether to make it from steel or a brilliant copper or something like that, really. So, yeah, it's vital. And just in terms of technology, I mean, do you use laser sintering um, or laser? Um, to, oh, no, that's just, um, no, not to make the components. So we use a CNC. We have a CNC lathe and then a CNC milling and drilling machine. So we machine everything out of solid. We don't do any growing, as it were. Okay. Do you use any 3D printing? No, not yet. No, no. But I think there's there's definitely going to be a future for that in horology. I was thinking about sustainability. Do you have a sustainability agenda or is it just something that comes with the watch? That wasn't very well framed. No, um, yeah, I mean, yes, we don't have a plan. I mean, we we make everything in house, with exception to just a few components. So out of the, you know, maybe 150, 200 components in a watch, there's only literally about four or five that we don't make in house. And you know, we make only 15 pieces a year, so it's I don't know, it's really it's not even a question that I should really. have asked, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, yeah. Well, the watch yeah. is sustainable yeah. because it's, you know, this is um, not something that is, you know, it's not it's not disposable. Well, it isn't, no. I mean, the idea, you know, these watches have been designed to last 100 years. Yeah. I mean, a few hundred years, you know. And actually, when I started work designing my own watches, I was noticing that you could go down to an auction house in London and buy a watch which was made um you know in the 16 1700s mm. with very little work those watches would keep as good a time as when they were first made yeah. and i put that down to the fact that they were just very well designed using very good quality materials and materials which are always replaceable you know you can always replace steels and brasses or whatever if you need be and so i've taken that approach into the design of my watches and you know taken it my design approach is to create a strong sturdy wristwatch and again something which uh, and this this all connects into the escapement the development of the escapement trying to extend the service intervals so 
I see no doubt why these watches won't be around for hundreds of years after you know I've gone really. And if they are in need of work, then a small bit of work will, in theory, should bring them back to life, and you know they should be around forever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no disposability. No, and it's amazing to think that something can run for 15 years potentially without needing any attention. Mm. That's quite mm. phenomenal, really. Yeah. I heard you speak about there being 32 skills required yes. to make a watch. That's that's quite a lot, quite a lot of skill. Could you give us it's just some sort of oversight of what that those skills might be? Yes. So so this was uh, goes back to a a book called Rhesus Cyclopedia. Basically, it was a survey of many industries throughout Britain of the day and um, how they operated and so on and so um, a study was done on the horology industry at the time and measuring or recording all the different trades that were involved in the creation of a single pocket watch so for example in order to create just a pocket watch case there were five separate trades involved in that case so You'd have somebody who'd make the um, various bands that would form the case. You'd have somebody who'd assemble those. You'd have a somebody who'd make the bow and the pendant, which, you know, how you'd hang the watch on a chain. And then you'd have somebody who'd solder all these various components together and I presume maybe even a finisher as well. So there were five trades involved in that. You'd have people who just specialised in making wheels day in, day out people who'd make pinions day in, day out. And then you'd have somebody who'd bring these components together and fit them into a watch. And this went throughout the whole of the building of the watch. You'd have these devoted trades who just focus on a particular skill. And actually, that still carries on today in Switzerland. You know, you still have your dial makers, your hand makers, case makers, wheel makers, pinion makers, and so on. So it's still the same approach in Switzerland, you know, as it was hundreds of years ago in Britain. Is the way you work in your workshop very different to the way a company would work in Switzerland or Germany, for example? Oh, yes, yes, because we're doing everything in-house. So we're making our cases and dials and hands and um, all the wheels and pinions. Yes, yeah, so we're making all these. I mean, basically, we're, we're an industry under one roof, you know, as, as I say, going back to George, that's how we operate. And is the workshop you're in, is that George's workshop that you see in the films or is that in a separate place now? Oh, it's a se separate building. Right. Yes, but um, George passed away in 2011 and he bequeathed his contents of his workshop to me. So we have, his, we have a room dedicated to his workshop um, where it's all sort of laid out and we're still using a lot of the equipment today, actually. That's, some of the key equipment is spread out throughout the workshop and we're still utilising that right. on a very regular basis. Yeah. And, I mean, that's testament, I, I guess, to the tradition of watchmaking because those things, mm. or those machi that machinery is still relevant and being used. Mm. It's amazing to think that, you know, machines that are hundreds of years old or even 60, 70 years old are still being used to make things that people are yes. using today. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have a watch collection of your own? I do, yes. I mean, it's not a huge collection by any 
stretch of the imagination. I may have maybe 15 pieces. And um, again, just, yeah, it's built up of watches that I find predominantly the, the mechanism inside them interests me. So, you know, I have quite a few Amigas. And um, again, from this sort of period of the 19 sort of 50s, 60s, where, you know, I believe they were really at the peak, they're making astonishing quality movements. And um, so, yes, the, you know, they're just sort of mechanisms that have intrigued me over the years. And um, I even have a few quartz watches, very early quartz watches. And again, just because they were from a period of horology where actually in Switzerland, all the mechanical know-how and equipment was being thrown out in favour of the quartz watch. And so I got a few mechanisms, few watches from this particular period of huge turmoil and change within the Swiss watch industry. And um, these these quartz watches were, you know, crude by modern quartz standards, but uh, very interesting watches, you know, just to that particular snapshot in history. And quartz not great so, for the environment. <laughs> no, it isn't. No, definitely not. No. No, actually, on these, the batteries are always failing. Right, so. okay. Yeah. So do you take those watches apart if you're fascinated by the movements? Because, I mean, nobody better to take them apart. Yeah, I mean, not all of them, but I have, yeah, I have done on some of them, yeah. Yeah, very much so, yeah. I mean, yeah. you take them apart and everything springs out, but at least you can put them back together again, like a cartoon. Yeah, exactly, yes. Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right, and so this has been, you know, I, I could talk to you for hours. I'm just fascinated. But I, I get, you know, you know, as a, we could carry on. But um, I'm aware of time. Um, I just I wanted to end on um, a question that I ask everybody, and that is, what is your luxury? What is my luxury? Gosh, yeah, I suppose. Um, gosh, I don't know really. Sometimes just jumping on a bike and going for a bike ride up a hill. <laughs> That's you know, that that is great. Okay, brilliant. You know, it's uh, just having freedom to do that is brilliant. That's fantastic. Um, Roger Smith, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been, you know, this has been enlightening. Um, so thank you for that. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Roger, thank you for joining us. And thank you to Intellect Books, our partner, to you for listening, and join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.